Well, good evening, everybody. Have you ever noticed a woman who just got engaged? Notice anything? Notice anything at all? I mean, if you look just right, and if you stand just right, and you tilt your head just right, you'll notice something, right? It shines like the stars, right? It's like, get that thing out of my grill, lady. I don't know what it is with uh, women with their engagement rings, but it's, a, it's apparently a really big deal. Am I right, ladies? Am I right, ladies? Yes. It's a big deal. I mean, you don't want a man popping you the question with a Cracker Jack ring. Am I right? You, you want the real deal coming at you. Uh, and, and if you were to talk to professionals about this idea of, of a diamond, they would tell you that the value of a, of a diamond is, is really around four C's. They call, they call it the, the four C's. And, and, and here they are. They're the cut of the diamond, the clarity of the diamond, the color of the diamond, and the carat of, of the diamond. And I just think it's a rock, to be honest. I'm like, I, I find no value in this at all. It's like, it's a rock to me. But people who study this stuff say that the four C's can make something a piece of junk or it can literally determine if it's worth a fortune. And so the four C's are what the experts determine what they call the character of a diamond. And here's what's interesting about about a, a diamond. Here's what's amazing about diamonds is that a diamond is formed under pressure. A diamond is formed uh, under friction, and the greater the pressure, the greater the character. The greater the friction, the greater the worth. The greater the adversity that it faces, the higher value it has on the, uh, on the outside, right? And now, so King Solomon is going to begin to tell us this is how life works for us as well, that adversity produces something in us. Pressure produces something in us, that this thing called character is developed when, when, we're, when we're under the friction, when we face adversity. And so he begins to share with us th- this idea of that sometimes a bad thing can become a good thing in your life. He, he says sometimes bad is better than good. Sometimes, he says, you actually need bad in your life to become all that God wants you to become. And so this is how it works in our old school series. If you're brand new around here, we are just traveling through the Old Testament part of the Bible. We're in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I asked you to do something with me during this series. I asked for you to follow along. I want you to read it for yourself. I want you to see how God's word plays a role in our lives. I want you to see the truth of God's word for yourselves. And so if you have a Bible or one of them there's smartphones, why don't you grab it and you can uh, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you got a smartphone, you can just Google this word. It's a strange spelling, uh, but it's the book of Ecclesiastes and it's like magic. A couple clicks, it'll appear for you. So just Google that and it'll be right there for you. And, and, and so what we want to do is we're just going to walk our way through this chapter a little bit. And here's why. Because bad things, they can shape us. Rough things, bad things, frictional things in our life. Adversity does something in us that, that good cannot do. That often bad does a better job in making us in who, into who we are actually supposed to become in this world. And so there's a principle at work. And, and he begins by saying this. And you may want to write this down. He, he begins by, by, in, in chapter 7 by saying that adversity creates something. Adversity brings something. Adversity brings an eternal 
perspective to us. And, and this little chapter, friends, is a gold mine of wisdom for living life. Solomon, King Solomon, at the end of his life is looking back. He's, he's being reflective and he's trying to teach us something in all of his wisdom gain. He's trying to teach us something about how life works. And then he gives us these seven statements. And we're going to walk through most of them tonight. They're called better than statements. You may want to write this down because sometimes something is better than something else. And, and so he begins to give us these proverbial, proverbial insights. He's, be, he's beginning to give us these better than sh- uh, statements that end up shaping our lives if we let them. And that's why I entitled this message, When Bad is Better. Because sometimes bad can be better for us. And so we've already started to tap into this a little bit with the opening video, but in the very first four verses of this chapter, I want you to follow along because this is going to challenge our thinking a little bit. Solomon actually suggests that sober reflection about sorrow and about death is actually very good for you to live a full life. He literally says reflection on the hurtful things of life can actually bring a full life to you, that you can have life unto the fullest if you are careful to look back over some of the difficult things of your life. And so look at this first part of the very first verse. Here's where it begins. He writes, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. He, he, he begins by saying right away that, that you and I, if we are gonna live the kind of life God wants us to live, if you're gonna kind of have the fullness of life that you want, He says, you're going to have to start developing this thing called character in your life. He says, a good name, a good reputation is better than Chanel number five, ladies. Right? He says, it's better than whatever it is that's going to make you smell all pretty in this world. Um, Remember that old Saturday Night Live sketch? Some of y'all who are my age will remember. It it, it went something like this. There was this character who would say, it's better to, to look marvelous than to feel marvelous. You guys remember that? Anybody remember that? He would say, it's better to look marvelous than to actually be marvelous, right? And Solomon hears that and goes, you're crazy. He looks at our culture that says, dress up the outside of your life. Look good, smell good. I'll drive everything that's all good. Live in the good part of town. But inside of your life, it's a wreck. We say, well, as long as you got your act together on the outside. He looks at that and says, you're crazy. Because if you're a wreck on the inside, you're still a wreck. You can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig, right? He says, it takes something more than that. Being the right person, he says. Listen, becoming the right person is better than smelling good or looking good because of your clothes or that fancy makeup or having the right perfume in your life because he says, being good, having a good name, having a good reputation, it will last to the grave, When all of that stuff you adorn your body with, it just goes away. What we thought was hip three years ago, we would never wear again. Am I right? But he says there's something that will last to the grave. It's who you are. It's who you become. A good reputation. There's a a man named Kyle Roach Sr. He was an all-pro NFL player in the 1950s. He was the captain of the New York Giants for 10 years. And What's very fascinating about his life was not just all of his accolades and all the you know, uh, games he won and the superstar status that he achieved way back in the 1950s, but what was the coolest thing was I heard his son named Carl Rote Jr. say this about his father. He said, 
he said, you know, of all the accolades and all the awards my dad won and all the rings and all that kind of stuff, um, he said, the greatest honor ever bestowed on my father was that 14 of his teammates over that 10-year period named their sons Kyle. You see, Kyle wrote was... um, was a follower of Christ, and he was serious about being a man of integrity. His character really mattered to him. He invested in the life of his family. He was faithful to his family. And his name and his character that he buried deep into his children outlives him to this very day. I want you to think about this. How important your reputation is. A good name matters in life. I'm always telling my kids, I get right down their face, I say, you are a chasso. You don't act like that. You don't behave like that. You don't think like that. Your name matters. Live up to your name. Solomon teaches us that who you are is far better and far more important than what you adorn your life with on the outside. It's good to look good. And some of y'all look good. Not you guys down in the front here, but the rest of y'all. He says it's okay to look good. But if you're banking on looking good to get you anywhere in life, it's simply not enough. Simply not enough. And then Solomon says this. He says this very odd statement. It's a better than statement. Listen to this. Tell me if you don't think this is a weird statement. He says, and the day you die is better than the day you are born. Isn't it the oddest little statement? Don't miss this. He's saying something here to us. He says, there are two days where your name matters most in this world. You think about this. There are two days that your name uh, rises above any other days of your life. It's the day your name is given to you. When they're putting on Facebook, here's little Joe, here's little Ken, you know, and, and, and your name matters, right? When you see a newborn baby, the first thing you ask the parents, what'd you name him? What'd you name her? Because the name matters at that moment. And then the other big day is what? When? When your obituary is read. And what the truth that Solomon is driving at, he says, what happens in between the first time that that name matters and the last time that that name matters? He says, what you do in between that time determines the value of who you are at the last time your day or your name is mentioned. He says, in between those two, determine who you are and how valuable your name will be. Listen, what you do between the day your name is given and to the day your name is spoken for the last time, he says, that will determine how your kids gather around you and lift up your name. How your friends gather around and they say, man, this guy is gonna be missed because he meant something to humanity. Because he made a difference in people's lives. Or she did this, and it was the kind of person she was. He says, in between those times, it matters. And then Solomon uses this. This, And we heard this earlier. He he says that we need to begin to develop, right, our, our character and our understanding of eternity and how important it is to build a good life. And he says this, for it's better to spend time at funerals than at parties, After all, everyone dies, and so the living should take this to heart. I I love the translation that uh, that says, in the living, that would be us, we should take note of this. We should write this down, that this should really matter to us, that you are going to die one day. 
Now, I have some bad news to you, for you. I, I did the research, uh, extensive research, all throughout the state of Michigan. I have determined that the mortality rate among us is 100%. Straight across the board, right? Now, it's not that we're morbid, not that we should go around every day sprinkling ashes on our head, ripping our clothes and saying, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're all gonna die. Not that at all. But he says there is wisdom in thinking about death because, because neither jogging nor liposuction nor all the brown rice in China is going to make you live forever, right? Death is the destiny of every man. And wise people, Solomon says, they, they have a way of coming to terms with their brevity of life. And, and in the result of that, it is a result of coming to terms that you are not going to walk this planet forever. You determine to make your life count. You determine to, to make your name good. That you determine to make your name count for all of eternity. Amen? It's when we decide that we're not going to live forever on this earth and that we're going to live way longer on the other side of this earth that we better make sure we're living in the right place forever. And that's what he says. And so wise people, they go to a funeral and they pay attention. Wise people, they see things like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and they watch and they carefully think about these things. Wise people study cancer victims. Wise people stop and they notice people who are financially worse off than them. Wise people, every once in a while, reflect deeply about their life and about where it's going and who they want to become because they know that their life on this side will not last forever. So he makes this better than type of statement that every once in a while, you need to show up to a memorial and take notes because one day you're gonna be the one who's laid out and the preacher's gonna be talking about you. Your day's coming, he says. And, and, and what is he driving at? He's saying that adversity produces this eternal perspective. He says death and suffering and sorrow and hurt and disappointment, they make us value life all the more, amen? It's like when you realize something, it makes you feel joy and love and peace and hope all the deeper in our life when we realize that these moments of joy are precious and they're few and they're fleeting. So it makes us realize the depth of them. And so in, in verses three and four, chapter seven, three and four, he, he writes another better than statement. And this one is, is just really telling about how life works. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. He's reiterating the same thought, right? He says, sorrow is better than laughter for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Now, although most of us would prefer laughter and pleasure, Solomon informs us that there is benefits to sorrow. That life is, that, that this life, he says, is full of sadness and sorrow, and yet life's difficulties have this potential to awaken a spiritual dimension in us. Wow, that was really deep. You better say that again. I will. <laughs> Solomon says that life's difficulties of any kind have this potential, this secret potential to awaken a spiritual dimension inside of your soul. This is why sometimes as young people, and many of us were young people at one time, this is why we could cruise through life because nothing bad had happened to us yet. Nothing big had happened to us yet. And all of a sudden, most of us in this room, we run into something 
And it makes us put on the brakes. It makes us realize this isn't going to last forever. That life is harder than we thought. And it awakens something in our soul. Sorrow makes us think about life, its meaning, and its priorities, right? A party rarely does that. Rarely when you're like going down the thing in Cedar Point, woo! Are you going, life is profound. (laughs) It's how we do it, right? At the party, you're partying. But he says, you need the other moments to make you realize that there's something else because suffering produces something that pleasure rarely does. Um, hope and peace and joy actually are found because of suffering. And Solomon says this is how life works, that God uses these difficult moments to produce his character and to give you a picture of, of eternity. I want to be real clear about something. Solomon can be very discouraging in this book. Anybody notice that? Okay, it can be very discouraging, but I want to be very clear. Solomon is not condemning happiness at all in this book. He's just the opposite here. He's actually telling us how to be happy. He's telling us how to live life to the fullest. He's saying, don't just crash course through life. Pause, reflect, think deep about it, and then you're going to live to the fullest. Pause, think, reflect about it, then you will be happiest because you will know what to run after with your life. Anybody want to say amen to that? There is wisdom in this for us. This was written 3,500 years ago. But this is for Americans right now, right here. We do this. We race through life thinking we're going to get it all, we're going to have it all, and we're going to live with all the gusto that we can. But we end up empty all the time. And Solomon says there's a different way to find happiness. And it begins with reflection. So imagine reading your own obituary one day, right? Alfred Nobel, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he had this opportunity uh, around the turn of the uh, 20th century. He, uh, his brother died, and he got up the next morning to read the obituary about his brother, but instead of being about his brother, they actually said Alfred Nobel had died. And so he read his own obituary. Not many of us are going to have the opportunity to do this, but he read his own obituary in the paper. And, and Alfred Nobel, you may know him as the inventor of dynamite, and so his, um, his obituary was all about his invention and the wealth that he uh, received from dynamite and all of the destruction and all of the death and all of the pain that this weaponry had brought to humanity. And he, and he records in his diary that something unique, he says it struck a chord in him that he wanted to rewrite his story. He wanted to rewrite his legacy, that he wanted to make sure people remembered him with a good name, with a good reputation. So he established this thing called the Nobel Peace Prize. He began to take his fortune, which he made from the art of war, and he turned it into something good, trying to encourage peace in all of humanity. You see, friends, listen, you and I, we're going to leave a legacy. Your, your life will, will, will write some sort of lasting impression Solomon suggests to you and to me that it ought to be the right one. He suggests to you and to me that we ought to do this thing right, that we write a lasting impression that matters, that matters now, and it carries through the days of our life, and it matters even after our death. That's what he says, friends. And I think there's all kinds of wisdom in this. And so Solomon says adversity brings an eternal perspective, but it does something else. He says this, he says, he says to you and to me that that people should care about who they are. 
You should care about, you know, we, in our culture now, like, especially when you're young, you go, I don't care what people think about me. You ever hear that? Come on. You hear, you ever said that? Now, there's a time to say I don't care what people think about me. But Solomon says, you've got to figure out how to build a reputation where people look at you and say, that man's a man of integrity. That man's a man of character. That woman's a woman of character. That woman's different than the rest of this world. And so he makes these better than statements that are a little bit different. He changes from talking about this eternal perspective to this idea of building character in our life. And he says it like this, and you may want to write this down. He says, adversity develops godly character. Adversity, hard times, friction develops something more than just an eternal perspective. It develops something in you right now that's going to make your life better. Difficulty develops character. And character, he says, produces a good life. And so Solomon um, says that, uh, that, that this is critical to get. He, he, listen, friends, we say it like this. God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you way too much to let you stay where you are. At this little church, we say, you're welcomed here, past and all, sins and all, baggage and all. Just come and join the club because we've all been there, done that. Listen, there's no perfect person inside of this little church. So we say the doors are wide open to you. But at the same exact time, we say that, that we ought to grow, that we ought to want to change, that we ought not want to stay the same, that, that we ought to desire to become something more, and dare I even say better, with our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what God wants from us. And Solomon is beginning to tap into this, and so he makes these better than statements, that something is better than something else for you. Better than statements. And this is what he says. Listen very carefully. Uh, Verse five, he says, "Uh, it is better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. This is so important. Solomon says, wise people, listen, 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 listen. Wise people, he says, hear truth about who they really are. Wise people are willing to take it in from somebody else instead of just getting all mad and all huffy and all puffy. How dare you say that? How dare you think that? He says, no, 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 no. Wise people embrace being criticized a fool simply wants to be praised all the time. You see, one of the most difficult things about spiritual maturity, I'm finding out, is self-appraisal. One of the most difficult things about spiritual maturity is self-awareness. Because I want you to think about it, friends. Uh, who's the last to find out that you're a jerk? Right? I mean, we think we're rocking. We think we're right. We think we got it going on. And the only one who is fooled is you. And Solomon says that is no way to get better in life. He says wise people don't want to, uh, 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 excuse me, he says, and and wise people um, don't want to be told all the time that they're perfect, that they got it all together. Wise people don't just put yes men and yes women all around them. That wise people embrace truth 
when done in love. Um, wise people, he says, aren't self-defensive. Anybody? Anybody? Come on, self-defensive. Um, they let other people speak truth with love into their lives. And, and I have to be perfectly honest with, with, with you because some of you are terrible at this. Some of you are terrible about hearing truth about you. Like me, on the other hand, I hear it just fine, perfectly fine. It doesn't bother me at all. I take criticism perfectly. <laughs> truth is, nobody in the room takes criticism well. Nobody. But Solomon says, wise people figure out how to take it. Wise people figure out how to apply it to their lives. Wise people figure out how to make their lives better. Wise people figure out how to stop spinning their wheels all of their life. And so he says to you and to me, you better be wise. Some of you, some of us, we've got to change this about us. We've got to let this spirit grow within us that says, I'm open, God. Bring truth into my life. Famous New York Yankee, Mickey Mantle. How many of you ever heard of Mickey Mantle? Anybody? Mickey Mantle. He tells one of his uh, most famous stories about how when he was just getting into professional ball, he was one of the youngest ball players ever in human history to be drafted by a major league team. The New York Yankees drafted him, and they sent him down to the minors, and they were grooming him for the pros. He was just like a 17, 17 and a half year old kid, and uh, he was already on his way in life. But, but when he got to the minors, he fell apart. I mean, he just did absolutely terrible, and so much so that he knew he was doing terrible. He called his father and said, Dad, I can't do this. I need you to come. He got homesick. He was away from his family. He was around all these big leaguers, and he, he was just under the pressure, and he literally fell apart. And so he calls his dad and says, Dad, you got to come and get me and bring me home. So his dad shows up with the old family station wagon, he writes, and he says that uh, when his dad got there, he didn't hear what he thought he was going to hear from his pa. Um, instead of being encouraged and instead of being like, come on, you can do this, son. You got it in you. Uh, his dad looked at him and just said these words. Is that all you got? You have no more guts than this, he writes. And his dad said, that's okay. Get in a van, get your luggage. Let's go. You can come and work in the mines with me for the rest of your life. And it was like a slap in the face to Mickey Mantle. He says at that moment, I heard the truth about who I was and how I was performing. And I knew I could do better. I knew I could change. And he says he went back and, well, as you know, any baseball fans in the house knows he made baseball history. Mickey Mantle went down to be one of the greatest ball players in human history, right? And Solomon is saying that adversity develops something in you. It develops character. It develops you into the kind of person you want to be. So look at this in a mo- for a moment here. Um, another better than statement. Verse 8, Solomon writes, uh, finishing is better than starting. Now listen to this. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride, right? Control your temper for anger labels you a fool. Ooh. Anybody? Anybody in the room ever have trouble with their tongue? Come on. Anybody ever have a little trouble in traffic and you're just livid about something you can do nothing about? Come on, anybody or is it just me? The Bible says the very feelings you're having just lets everybody know how much of a fool you really are, right? And he says we should do it differently. And so Solomon emphasizes this thing called patience. Why? Because patience produces something in us. Patience produces character. 
Um, I, I heard somebody say it like this one time. The end of God's work is better than the beginning. Think about that. The end is better than the beginning. Think about all the stuff you went through. Anybody gone through junk in their life? Come on, anybody? Think about the road you've gone. Man, when you're early on in this and you do not see a bright light, you don't see the end of the tunnel, all you see is darkness, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. When you come out, you look back and you go, certainly like it here better. Anybody hear this? The work of God is better at the end because he's made you better. He's created something new in you. He's taken you from where you were to where he wants you. This is what Solomon says. And so God seems to have this art of forcing patience into my life, and I hate it. And I'm guessing you do as well, right? Our Western society has, a lost, has lost its taste for the long haul of life. Uh, we want everything now. We crave instant potatoes, instant coffee, instant fast food, immediate gratification, immediate uh, even entertainment, right? Our computers and our modems are faster than ever, and yet we complain that we can't download an entire HD movie in a matter of a second or two, right? It's unbelievable. Uh, we get all uh, crazy, freaked out when, when we send a message from our phone and it travels to some t- cell tower network and beams it up to outer space and beams it down to them and it takes like two full seconds. How ridiculous is that before they receive our text message? We want it now. And God says, I do my best work in you when I cause you to wait. Ugh. Right? but God is not interested in making us happy. He's interested in making us satisfied. He says all of this is meaningless unless there's some sort of soul satisfaction in life. Um, Friends, how many times have I allowed myself um, to become impatient with another driver, another red light? How many times have I been impatient with my wife or kids? Uh, How many times have I lost patience with my friends, our church, or even with God? It's shameful to admit, but more times than I could possibly count. And God says, I am not giving up on you, Jeremy. I'm going to form something in you that is better. And it's going to take stuff that is bad to do that in your life. A fellow named Richard Hendricks once said this. Read this with me. You can just follow along. He says, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us ever encounter. Now, I don't know who the heck Richard Hendricks is, but he's on to something. He is on to something really big there. Um, God is interested in our character development, so he puts us to the test through this thing called patience in order to develop this thing called perseverance inside of us. He frequently does this because life is a marathon, not a sprint. Anybody have some people in their lives that, yeah, let's do this, and it lasts for about a week? It's irritating, isn't it? And God gets irritated with me and you when we do that. He says, listen, It's the end day that matters. What people are going to speak about your name. That's what I'm working on. Stop getting so sidetracked. Stop getting so upset and ticked off about everything. 
He goes, I'm doing something to produce something in you for the last day of your life. Pretty heavy thought, huh? Pretty heavy thought. He frequently does this because life is a marathon, not a sprint. God is building patience in us so that we can go the distance in our marriages, in our parenting, grandparenting, in our friendships, in our careers, in our health, in our finances, so we can go the distance in our Christian life, our Christian journey with him. He loves us too much to keep us the same. He loves us enough to challenge us, challenges, challenge us. And oftentimes his best source for that is just making you wait. Just making you wait. He says adversity does something, friction does something, waiting does something, it shapes something, it molds something. Going through hard stuff, he says, makes us better. Bad is sometimes better than good. Then check this out. This is how he ends this section of the, of the teaching. He says this. Solomon says these powerful words. Do not miss this. He says, so, for you and me, he goes, accept the way God does things. Pause. All right, he thought about it. Accept the way God does things. Is that easy for anybody in the room? Or is it just me who struggles with that? He says, sometimes you just got to accept it. It'll make you better if you do. For who can straighten out what God has made crooked, right? Enjoy prosperity while you can. But when hard times strike, realize that both came from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Now that's some hard stuff right there. That's some hard teaching right there. Solomon explains that we cannot understand why God does what God does, but you and I, me at least, we want to know. Explain it to me, God. Like we're some little kid going, explain it to me, Dad. Tell me it all right now. And your dad's going, you could not possibly know because what I'm doing in you is for your last day when your name will be spoken at the end. So Solomon says, there's got to come to a point where we understand that when God bends something in our life, we can't unbend it. When God makes it crooked, we can't make it straight again. That God is going to do some things that we simply are not able to understand. And he says it's futile to understand this, to to constantly try to question God. At some point, he says, you and me, we've got to get to this point where we say we trust God. Yeah, we trust you, God. I don't like it. I don't understand it. But I trust you with this God. Where we say, God, you are good. And I want to accept this with joy in my life. I want to find peace even in the middle of all of this. You see, friends, because God does not waste sorrow. He does not waste adversity. He has a purpose in it all. And I know it's hard to understand this. I know it's hard to accept this. Some of you in this room, you've lost children. You've gone through a divorce. Your health has crashed on you way too early. Your finances have been stripped of you. And you go, how is this possibly good? God did not say that was good. But he says, I can make something good from all of that. Because sometimes, because sometimes you have to go through bad. Can't explain it. Don't like it. He says, you can't possibly know it all. He says this, friends. I want you to hear this. Therefore, when times are good, be happy about it. Enjoy it. 
When life is on the up, you can just run with it. When you're feeling good, take a jog. When you're feeling good, go out for an ice cream, then take another jog. Right? But when times are bad, he says, don't you dare forget who gave you the good times. It's the same God. And he's got a reason for both. He's got a reason for both. Unfortunately, we get it all confused and we demand the answers and and he says, listen, can't, just can't. A wise old Chinese woodcutter lived out on the the edge of the Mongolian bar, uh, not barbecue. Man, border. You guys need to get a professional preacher who won't screw things up. Telling you right now. A wise old Chinese woodcutter lived on the edge of the Mongolian and Chinese border, all right? And uh, one day, one day his favorite horse, a beautiful white mare, jumped the fence and it was seized by the enemy on the other side. And he lost his horse and his friend came over to comfort him and said, man, we're so sorry about you losing the horse. That was very, very bad news to hear. But this Chinese man, he says, well, how do you know it's bad news? It might be good news. Well, a week later, a man looked out, the same man looked out his window to see his old mare, his white, beautiful mare, running toward him at breakneck speed. But this time he was, he had a stallion, a beautiful black stallion in tow right behind him. And so they jumped the fence. They came back onto his property and he put both horses into his barn. His same neighbor came over and said, whoa, that's very, very good news. We were very excited to hear the good news about now having two horses. But this Chinese man says, well, how do you know it's good news? It might be bad news. Well, the very next day, the man's only son decided to break the stallion and try to ride him, but it threw him off and he landed painfully, breaking his leg. And, and then so this same neighbor came over and made another visit and this time very sympathetically said, we are so, so sorry to hear about your son breaking his leg on the new horse. It must be very, very bad news. Well, the same Chinese man answers. He says, well, how do you know it's bad news? It could be good news. Well, within a month, war erupted between the Chinese and the Mongolians, and the Chinese recruiters came through that area, pressing all of the young men into the army, and all of them, every last one of them perished, except for the woodcutter's son, who had a broken leg and could not go off to war. You see, the woodcutter says, the things you consider good were actually bad, and the things that you seem bad or considered bad were actually good. Let me, let me say it again, what Solomon said. He, he says, enjoy prosperity when you can. Be happy about it. Thank God for it. Enjoy every minute of it. But when bad happens, remember it is the same God who brings good into your life. It is the same God who brought prosperity into your life. And God wants to do something in you through both of them. Through both of them. Now, there are folks in this room tonight who you're not a Christian yet, and you're here, and we're so glad you're here, and you're thinking about all this. I want to say to you that God will bring good into your life. And he will allow bad into your life. Because there are times in your life that you need good things to point you to God. Kindness to point you to God. 
And then there are times that you need sorrow and brokenness in order for you to realize your need for God. Turn to him. He brings all things into our life so that we will see him. For there are many of you who are believers in this room. You're Christians like me. And you're trying to get this thing right. But sometimes we live in this roller coaster kind of experience. We need to be reminded that God wants us to turn to Christ our Savior. That God wants us to turn to Jesus, his son. And he sometimes allows really good things in our life. Great things. So that we'll get on our knees and remember that he is good to us. And then there are other times that he allows you and me to go through some deep, dark times. And he wants to remind us to to turn to him, to cling to him, to reach for him. God will use the good and the bad to produce eternity and his character in your soul. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come and we bow. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you used uh, Solomon all those years ago to remind us what is really important in this life. God, sometimes we get it really confused. Sometimes we get it really backwards. And so God, right now, if there's good going on in our life, um, we're just thankful for this right now. We remember that it is from you. We're thankful, God. And if there's difficulty, we're asking that you would use this to produce eternity in our soul. That you would produce character in us. That you would help us to become more like you because of it. Now, friends, before we say amen together, um, some of you in this room, you may need to pray with somebody. You might need a little bit more. You might be going like, you know what? I am going through some of that dark stuff right now and it's hard and it's difficult. And I'm hopeful after we say amen, as people begin to get up and walk out, that you'll walk up to the front of the stage area to my left and to your right and that you'll come and just meet some of my friends over here who have a little tag on that, and you're just gonna say, I just need someone to pray with. And they would love to pray with you. So God, would you speak to each one in this room tonight? Speak, oh God. Speak, oh God. For your child is listening. Amen. Amen.